The scripture this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that now you would open our ears to hear your voice. Lord, you are the one who inspired what is written here. You are the one who can open it to us now, and we ask that you would change us more and more into your image to reflect your beauty and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a pastor's wife at another church who was teaching a second grade Sunday school class. And one morning, a little boy who was new walked in the door by the name of Josh. And the teacher noticed immediately that Josh had no left arm. And so as a teacher with second graders, you might be like her because you know young children just say whatever comes to their minds. And her fear was that one of the other second graders would say something that would embarrass Josh, make him feel awkward, or somehow even hurt him during the morning. So she said the whole hour she was on pins and needles trying to do classroom management so overtly that there was no possibility of any harm by what is said coming to Josh. And then she said at the very end of the class, she ended the way they always did, And without even thinking, she said, okay, class, let's say what we do every week. And they put their hands together and said, here's the church, here's the steeple. And she said, once they got to the steeple, she realized, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And she's like, I have done what I was trying to prevent from happening all morning long. And before she could interrupt and say anything, she said, there's a little girl by the name of Catherine sitting to the left of Josh, who right as that began... Catherine had reached over and grabbed Josh's right hand with her left and said, hey, Josh, let's do church together. 
I love that story. It's, a, it's a, I think, a beautiful picture, and it's also, there's a lot of wisdom that comes from that little statement of Catherine saying, hey, let's do church together, because we all have brokenness. In many ways, we're all like Josh in the body of Christ. We all have brokenness. We all have inabilities and disabilities. We all have missing parts. And yet, there's only one way to do church, and that's together. What we have in the first 16 verses of chapter 4 in Ephesians is Paul talking a lot about how we do church together. Now, sometimes as you are listening to this, this passage is broken into three or maybe even four separate segments where you could get three or four sermons out of it. And maybe it was not wise on my part, but I kept it all together because there is one big theme. So I may not cover everything, and I may run the risk of information overload. We'll see. I may edit on the fly. I don't know. But there is one big theme that holds all of these verses together, so I'll try and bring that out for you. But the first thing, before we get to Paul's big theme here, is you probably noticed right away that one of the things that he emphasizes right away in this passage is that the church of Jesus Christ is called to unity. In verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then he ends the section in that same way, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul's saying that unity must be one of our top priorities as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we all have different priorities. Our kids, our welfare, health, financial situation, doing our jobs, participating in different things in society. Those are all different priorities. Paul's saying there needs to be one that's front and center for every believer, and that is a priority of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this isn't just something that I'm telling you to do. This flows out of how the church was created in the first place. And if you've been here for our series going through Ephesians, you know that Paul has said that now in Jesus Christ, a whole new humanity has been created because there were Jews and there were Gentiles, and it's not simply that now Gentiles somehow become part of the Jewish nation. Paul has said, in Jesus, God has created an all-new humanity comprising Jew and Gentile together, distinct from and called out of their respective places. It's a whole new community. And what Paul does in this passage, he says, you were created by the Godhead, and now as that new community, you are called to reflect the Godhead. You are called to reflect the Trinity itself. In verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul writes, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the first thing you notice, there's the word one that occurs seven different times here. Once again, emphasizing the call to unity. But what he's doing here, even more than just the call to unity, he's saying our unity is founded and grounded and based in the Trinity itself. One of the things we haven't had time to unpack as we've gone through Ephesians so far, but if you go back and you read 
particularly chapters 2 and 3 in Ephesians, and now at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is regularly mentioning the Trinity. It's one of the greatest Trinitarian books in the whole Bible as he talks about Father, Son, Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And what he does here, it says, you, church, have been founded by the Trinity. One Father, one Son, one Lord, one Spirit. And you now are called to live in such a way that you reflect their relationships. And what he's getting at is, think about the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From all eternity, they have been in nothing but selfless love, honoring, adoration of the other members of the Trinity. Now imagine what that relationship must be like as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity are calling out the beauty and the wonder of the other members of the Trinity. This is how those relationships have worked from all eternity. And so and if you grasp that, you grasp how devastating it was for Jesus on the cross for him to be separated from his Father as the Father turned his face away from the Son because the unity that existed from all eternity is now broken as sin, as Christ literally becomes sin on the cross. Paul's saying, just as the Trinity members live in perfect unity, honoring others, that's the high standard and high calling of every single person in the body of Christ. Their self-giving, other-focused way of relating to each other is both an example to us and an expectation of us in how we relate to each other. And that's why Paul emphasizes, as he has many times already in Ephesians, Jesus is the head of the church. We are his body. We are integrally connected in a mystical way to the Trinity itself. And so our relationships are meant to reflect that same self-giving oneness. Now, there's a, I think there's a very obvious application here. It's unthinkable, except for when the Father turned His face away from the Son of the cross, that the members of the Trinity, one would remove themselves from that, or they would stop, would break away. Paul's saying it's unthinkable for a person in Jesus Christ to simply write off another Christian. I'm going to show you the hand because I don't have time for you. I write you out of my life. You've offended me one too many times. I'm done with you. I may nod my head to you in the hallway, but I'm not going to greet you. I'm not going to talk to you. Maybe I'll even fake it. What what Paul's getting at is the unity expected, the oneness expected in the body of Christ is meant to be just like the Trinity, and it's unthinkable that a person in Jesus Christ would ever treat another believer that way. Now, I know, I know you're thinking, but, 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 but. (laughs) Yeah, because there are a lot of people inside the church of Jesus Christ that aren't Christians. Okay, we get that. Also, inside the church of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of sinners out there. You guys are a bunch of filthy sinners. And so you offend each other. And I am the chief of sinners here. I offend you guys regularly. That's the way it is because we're not perfect. We're all sinners. There's a level playing field here. Everyone has great sin in their life. We all have the capacity to wound each other deeply, but we don't have the luxury to write each other off. And I've told you before that when a person becomes a Christian who is a jerk, you know what they are now? A Christian jerk. 
because change is really slow. You know what? We're all in Christ Jesus by sanctification getting better year over year, but we very slowly change from Christian jerks into not Christian jerks. And so what happens, we will always offend each other in the body, but our relationships and what Paul's calling us to as members of the new community is to be so committed to each other and to live in such a way that our relationships at some level reflect the beauty of the relationships of the Trinity itself. Like I said in that opening illustration, we all have brokenness. We all have inabilities and disabilities. We all have missing parts. But Paul's saying there's only one way to do church, and that's to do church together. So, now you may be wondering, why is this unity so important? And this gets us to Paul's main theme that is why I believe he writes all 16 of these verses. And here's his main theme. Well, uh, maturity comes through unity, and we will remain spiritually immature unless we strive for unity in the church. Maturity only comes through unity. And we will remain spiritually immature unless we actually together strive for unity. Just a few verses that highlight this. 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we'll no longer be infants. We won't be immature. In verse 15, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Paul stresses unity because our unity is going to determine our maturity. And what Paul does here, he's he's not emphasizing each one of us as individuals growing up. He's emphasizing us as collective members together, making up the church of Jesus Christ, growing together in unity and maturity. And so what that means is this, is that How well I am committed to each one of you and seek unity within this place determines how much we grow together spiritually. But this isn't just on me or any one of the other pastors or any other staff member. It applies to every single person in the church. How well you are committed to everyone else in the body of Jesus Christ and seek unity in this place determines how much we together will grow up into spiritual maturity. For you see, when we fail to seek unity, we are consigning ourselves to perpetual immaturity. When we fail to seek unity, we are consigning ourselves perpetually to immaturity spiritually we remain spiritual infants. And there's a big problem with that. Babies are wonderful. Now, I have a good picture of Doug here when he was little. Now, thank you. But there's a problem with spiritual babies. And Paul, I'm going to just hit these very quickly because Paul kind of talks them in different ways, but when he uses the word infant, just inherent in the word infant is, you know what, babies are immature. They are self centered little creatures. Because, I mean, if you've ever, I mean, even if you haven't had your own, if you've worked in a nursery or been around kids, you know, you actually have to teach little ones that they have to share, that they have to wait, 
You literally have to teach infants that there are other human beings who exist outside of them with needs and wants of their own. Because everything in an infant's life is self-centered. The universe revolves around them. You know what? Spiritual babies are no different. And the crazy thing is this. It doesn't matter how old you are when you come to Jesus Christ. Maybe you come to Jesus Christ as a very young child, four years old. Maybe you come to Jesus Christ as a 90-year-old individual. At that point, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, now you're a spiritual baby. You see, we all start in the same place. The power of God working in us, bringing us to faith, now you're a spiritual baby. No one is just immediately sanctified and mature in the faith. Everyone starts as a spiritual infant. And infants are very self-centered. In the church of Jesus Christ, there's a big bunch of babies out there. A lot of us are really big babies because we're incredibly self-centered. And this can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. You know, thinking that the gospel is just to serve you and meet your needs is a, is a sign that you're very self-centered. Uh, thinking that the community is here to serve you rather than you serving the community is a sign that you're very self-centered means you're a spiritual baby. Uh, when you can't forgive someone else, or you, you view that everything that's spoken or done is somehow related to you, that's a sign of great spiritual immaturity rooted in self-centeredness, because the world revolves around you. You know, uh, I've told you this before, you know, preaching brings out every idol in a person's life. And one of those idols is it's really tempting to try and do something that makes it so that you think about the person speaking in a certain way, whether the person speaking wants you to think of them as smart or funny or witty or whatever. I mean, there's just idol upon idol upon idol. Those who preach coming from that vantage point, and I've done this, I'm so far beyond that now, uh, <laughs> But those who do that, you know what? You are living out a spiritual immaturity because it's not about serving the body. It's more about promoting self. You know, spiritual infanthood can creep up in all kinds of ways in people's lives. Spiritual babies are immature. You can't stay that way. Spiritual infants also are easily confused and influenced. This is why Paul says that you are tossed back and forth by the waves. If you, if you don't believe me, go and spend a morning in our nursery, and you can see within the span of 10 short seconds an infant moving from excitement to boredom to full-on anger and frustration in 10 seconds. And so you're constantly trying to manage that. Spiritual infants are the same way. We toss back and forth with the wind and the waves, and the way this comes up is you're always looking for the next big thing that's going to meet your need. I'm going to go to this retreat. I'm going to go to this conference. I'm going to go to this concert. I'm going to have this moment in church. And when you're looking for that and it doesn't happen, and then you say, well, I'm moving on, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity of you being tossed back and forth by the waves and by the wind. And if you, and if you just are always looking for some spiritual high by an experience, that's a sign that you live being tossed back and forth. Because if it doesn't happen, then you swing low. Babies also, spiritual infants, lack discernment. That's why Paul says, 
You're blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Know this. Not everyone who purports to open God's word to you is telling you the truth. You realize there are some people who do the work of ministry simply to make money. And you can go to the extremes of televangelists and things like that, but it's not just limited to extremes. And and you need to know that there are plenty of wolves in sheep's clothing who will purport, and often the way you can discern, you have to listen. One, you have to know God's Word well to discern what is true and right, and and infants can't. You know, you can take an infant, and they don't necessarily know the difference between squished peas and squished poison. They both taste nasty, and an infant can't discern that you're killing me by giving me the poison. You know, they think you're killing them by giving them the peas. Spiritual infants are the same way. They don't necessarily have the faculties to discern what is nourishing to them and what is breeding spiritual death in them. And we could go on with all kinds of examples of what breeds spiritual death, but this is why Paul is saying, in the church of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of spiritual infants out there. You can't stay that way, and we have to grow up together. And and, and I think one application to this is don't be surprised when spiritual immaturity hits you in the face from somebody else. Most likely, your own spiritual immaturity is hitting somebody else in their face. And so that's why Paul knows the church is full of a bunch of broken people, and we're seeking to grow up together, but that will only happen well when every person within the church is committed to unity. Because unity is the number one factor that will impact our maturity together. Now, okay, that's a lot. Paul now, because there's a lot of things I haven't talked about and I'm not even going to. I may not talk about some of your favorite verses from this passage. But what he does is he gives multiple different ways that the church of Jesus Christ can build and foster unity and maturity. I'll just mention it to you, but won't go into it a lot. The first one is using your spiritual gifts. Verses 7 through 13 is a very technical passage of Scripture, very confusing, particularly verse 9. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 read this way, "...but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it." This is why it says, "...when He ascended on high, He took many captives and gave gifts to His people." What Paul's saying in 7 through 13, so you can go and study this and unpack it on your own, is that every single person in the church of Jesus Christ, now that you're His and made part of this new community, He has given you not only the gift of Holy Spirit, He's given you spiritual gifts that you were called to use for the sake of the unity and the maturity of the body of Christ. That's what 7 through 13 are all about. And he talks about pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets. That's not an exhaustive list. Every one of you in Jesus Christ has been gifted. And Paul's saying, use your gifts for unity and maturity. He also, at the beginning, says, I urge you, Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You've been called into this new community founded by the Trinity. Walk worthily. And here's how you do that. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
It's not without reason that Paul lists humility first. It's actually quite significant that he lists humility first because humility in the body of Jesus Christ always engenders unity. Humility always engenders unity. And what Paul's doing with this list of four things here is he's calling us to a radically gracious behavior that we show to each other. Chrysostom, one of the early fathers of the church, used to say that the greatest divider of the church is pride. You get a lot of proud people in the church of Jesus Christ, and it's going to divide the church like crazy. Now, imagine with me for just a minute if Stonebridge, and this applies to every church of Jesus Christ around the world, imagine if everyone in the church lived out every single day with the same spirit of Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And if you go and you look it up, you'll see it starts by saying, Jesus, knowing that all authority had been given to him by his Father. So Jesus now understands all power, all right, all authority is mine. What's the first thing he does? He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. The very first thing he does. And he says to his disciples afterward, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What does this look like? It doesn't mean that we're going to go get bowls and literally wash each other's feet every single Sunday morning. But imagine, imagine a community that looked like this, where every person within the community was more interested in others than themselves. Where everyone approaches life in the community with an attitude that I am here to serve everyone else rather than be served. I am here to give rather than to take. Imagine a community where everyone exalts and praises everyone else instead of themselves where no one cares who gets the credit, where no one cares who gets the praise, and you're seeking to say how great everyone else is rather than calling up your own greatness. Imagine a community where everyone's seeking to, I am this morning and every day going to put everyone else first and me last, where I'm going to add value to the community somehow. That would be a community that the world would take notice of and say, what in the world do they have? You see, that's what Paul's calling us to, to be a radically gracious community where we put each other first and we live in the same manner as the members of the Godhead. You see, when we live this way, unity will happen and so will maturity. And the last thing he says, this briefly, Speaking the truth in love, another way, we need to blend truth and love together. Speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who's the head. You know this. Truth without love is deadly. Because if you go to bang somebody over the head with truth, with no love, they're not going to hear you for one. All you're doing is trying to make a point, prove yourself right, or win an argument. 
that will never foster unity in any relationship. We know that truth without love is deadly, but you also need to realize love without truth is deadly. Because the way that looks is this. Every single one of us, we have blind spots in our lives. Every single one of us are sinners in different ways, and we don't even recognize it. And if we never tell each other the truth in love, we are consigning ourselves to perpetual immaturity because we'll never deal with certain things unless the Spirit happens to reveal it somehow directly to us. But that's why we're put in community, to speak the truth in love. And so what Paul's calling for is, is a type of love where that is it's absolute honesty saturated with tenderness, goodwill, and love. And you know the greatest example of this for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth of the cross. You're a sinner, dead in your sins, can do nothing about it. And it took the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to make it so that you are now acceptable to the Father. That's the truth of the cross. We need to know that truth because any other thing will, will live in spiritual death. But notice the love of the cross. It speaks a bold, in-your-face truth with a bold, in-your-face love of I'm going to lay down my life for you. That's speaking the truth in love. You see, when we live as Christ calls us to, we're going to live after that manner. Let me end with an image and an illustration. And I'll ask you, as you think about this, how are you doing living out humility? Where do you maybe need an injection of gentleness in life? Where do you need to give up revenge and show forbearance and forgiveness? If you've ever been out to California, I bet you've taken time to go see the great redwoods out there. These trees are absolutely amazing. Some of them reach up to 350 feet tall, and some of them are more than 2,500 years old. Now, think about that. So, the height, these things are taller than a football field. You can see the relative height to other buildings there. And they're 500 years older than the birth of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus was born, some of these trees in California were already a young 500 years old. They're amazing trees. And, and you go out there and you're just you're blown away by the enormous size of them. And you would think that trees that are that tall have root systems that go way down, but they don't. Because one of the things they'll tell you is that their roots are only about five feet deep. And yet, they're some of the sturdiest trees in the world, and here's why. Rather than their roots going deep, their roots go out more than 100 feet in all directions. And what happens is their roots crisscross and entwine with all the other roots of the other trees around them, and they start fusing together, where the roots then become one with each other. And it's the connection of the forest with their roots fusing together that the one tree who may be struggling gets nourishment because its roots are entwined with every other tree out there. It's a picture of how our relationships are to look. So when the storms of life hit you and your roots are fused with other believers, you can withstand them. 
because you're in a community that is committed to each other in grace. And I'll end with a quote. Eugene Peterson's an author I love, and he wrote a book a number of years ago called The Pastor. And he was talking about the pastor's wife in this, but I changed the wording from pastor's wife to church member because it's so appropriate for what we're talking about this morning. And Peterson writes this. He says, being a church member is a vocation, a way of life. It means participation in an intricate web of hospitality, living at the intersection of human need and God's grace, inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed, where neglected children are noticed, where the stories of Jesus are told, and people who have no stories find that they do have stories, stories that are part of the Jesus story. Being a church member places us strategically yet unobtrusively at a heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and earth. That's what it means to be a church member, as Paul's talking about in this passage. Brothers and sisters, may we strive together for unity, regardless of race, regardless of economics, regardless of interest or passions or background. May we be a body that unites together and is committed fiercely that nothing will get between me and my brothers and sisters. Because our commitment is to live out passionately and show the world the commitment of God as members of the Trinity. And if we do that, we'll grow up into a beautiful body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for doing what we could not do for ourselves. Your cross tells us a hard truth, and yet your love is so amazing. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to live in the empowering grace that you give us every single day, that we would show commitment and forgiveness and grace and union with each other, that in a small way we might reflect your beauty. Lord, may we grow up into maturity and look far more like you, Jesus, so that your body would match you the head, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.